This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. So Judas was thinking, man, this is worth a year's wage because that's what the text tells us. And he's thinking to himself, if this had been sold, could have been put in the treasury under the guise of we need to give it to the poor and he could have been helping himself to it. So what's he thinking? He's thinking what I can get and Mary's thinking about what I can give. Now, when you look here in this text, I see a few things about her, her gift, her offering to Jesus. What, what was it all about? Well, it was three things. It was personal, it was sacrificial, and it was total. When you come to Jesus, are you thinking, what can I get from him or what can I give to him? These are two very different ideas, and the heart of the matter behind such questions are drastically different. In Pastor Gary's message today, he'll examine the differences. One is of a servant's heart, and the other is looking to be served. One wishes to glorify God, the other wants to please the flesh. Use today's message to ask yourself where your heart is. Are you looking to fulfill your desires or Jesus's? At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 14, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. There's no other prophecy that we're waiting on before the trumpet call of God could sound and and God raptures the church. So what does that mean? That means we have to be ready. And we have to be living our lives in such a way that he could come at any moment. In fact, that's something else that Peter said there in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 11. He says, well, since everything will be destroyed in this way, talking about the future of the earth will eventually be destroyed by fire, so will the heavens. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? He asks, and then he answers it, next sentence, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That's the mandate for, for the church, that until Christ returns, he better find us faithful, and he better find us watching and ready for his second coming. And that means living a holy life like he could come at any moment, because he could. And this is the hope of the church. But yet some people are living like he's just never going to come back. And we need to instead be living with vigilance, to be awake spiritually, that is to say, and to be on our guard and to be looking and to be expectantly waiting for his return. And so that's what he exhorts us to be about here. Well, we move into chapter 14 now. And and again, this is part of the Passover season here leading up to his crucifixion. And so chapter 14 says this, now the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread We're only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. See, they they understood that right now Jesus is still pretty popular. I mean, it was just a few days ago on Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday, Jesus comes riding in 
to Jerusalem on, on a donkey, and people are waving palm branches, and they're all excited, and they're hailing him, and they're reciting Psalm 118, the Messianic Psalm. And so they're excited, and the, the chief priests, the leaders, they know Jesus is very popular right now, and if they try to arrest him, they're going to have a riot on their hands. So they have to wait. And so it says in verse 3 that while he was at Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare my burial. I tell you the truth, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Okay, so this scene here is happening in the town of Bethany, and uh, that plays into this scene. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute, the actual name of the town and the location here. Uh, But this story here is not to be confused with another similar story that is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, when Jesus is at the home of another guy named Simon, but that Simon is known as Simon the Pharisee. And in Luke 7, another woman comes in, and she also breaks an alabaster jar of perfume, and it says that she pours it on Jesus' feet. Uh, Mark's Gospel here says in this scene that this woman pours it on Jesus' head. But you have very similar things. In, in, in Mark 14, you have a woman who comes into this home. There's a guy named Simon who is, you know, the owner of the home. And this woman breaks this alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, pours it on Jesus' head. You have a scene in Luke 7 where it's another Simon. Uh, he's a Pharisee. The woman who comes in in that scene is a prostitute. She breaks this alabaster jar perfume and pours it on his feet and cries over his feet and wipes his feet with, with her hair as well. Those two scenes are different. Now, this scene here in Mark 14 is also the same as what you're going to read later in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And in John 12, it tells us that the woman in this story here in Mark 14, John 12 tells us, is Mary of Bethany. This is the Mary who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. It's that Mary. The home is Simon the leper. This is a different guy from Simon the Pharisee, and probably... He's named Simon the leper, not because he's still a leper. If he were still a leper, he'd be in a leper colony, and they wouldn't be having dinner at his house. I mean, maybe Jesus would, but nobody else would, okay? Because you're not going to go near a leper. And they were all unclean, and they were quarantined in the day. So this is probably a guy that Jesus is actually healed of leprosy. But he still is known as Simon the leper. And he's having this dinner party here, and Jesus is his invited guest. And in comes, according to John's gospel, Mary, the sister of Martha Lazarus. And she's coming in here. She's also from Bethany, so this all makes sense here. And she comes with this alabaster jar, very expensive perfume, and it's made of pure nard. She breaks it, pours the perfume on Jesus' head, and John's gospel adds, and she also pours it on his feet. In other words, it's just a total body oil over here. And she's doing it. Because Jesus says, listen, she has insight. 
And it's an insight that the other 12 of his disciples didn't even have. You know, all this time Jesus keeps saying to them, listen, Son of Man is going to be betrayed, turned into the hands of sinful men, going to be crucified, going to rise after three days. And they're like, you know, they're always like that. But Mary gets it because Mary is actually doing something in advance of his burial. She's hearing all of this and she's tuned in. And she's actually anointing him as a way to honor him. And it's an offering to him. And she's worshiping him. But Jesus says, she's preparing my body for burial. And they're probably scratching their heads going, burial? When are you going to die like this? You know, because they're just clueless here. Not the sharpest knives in the drawer. But Mary gets it here. And so she's anointing him with, with this oil here as this way of honoring him. And Jesus says, this story is going to be told about her in memory of her. And here we are 2,000 years later talking about her. Because her legacy lives on of this beautiful thing that she has done. Now, in the middle of this scene, it says here that some of those present were saying indignantly, indignantly to, to one another. Um, actually, John is specific. John says that it was Judas who actually spoke up. And it's the first time that we hear Judas speaking in the Gospels. And John's Gospel says, yeah, Judas spoke up and he said, you know what? This money could have been given to the poor. What are you doing? But John adds that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but he said this because he was the keeper of the money bag and that he was a thief. So Judas was thinking, man, this is worth a year's wage because that's what the text tells us. And he's thinking to himself, if this had been sold, could have been put in the treasury under the guise of we need to give it to the poor and he could have been helping himself to it. So what's he thinking? He's thinking what I can get and Mary's thinking about what I can give. Now, when you look here in this text, I see a few things about her, her gift, her offering to Jesus. What, what was it all about? Well, it was three things. It was personal, it was sacrificial, and it was total. In other words, it expressed her love. It was personal. She's doing this personally to Jesus, her gift, her offering, this, this expensive perfume. She's doing it because of her love. She didn't care what other people thought. There's no mention in any of the texts when it describes this story that she says anything. It's just what she does. She, she has nothing to say to defend herself while these other guys are like, you know what, this could have been given to the poor. What are you doing? She doesn't respond. She doesn't say anything. She just honors Jesus. She does it personally. She does it sacrificially because it says it was very expensive. I mean, it does say here it was worth about a year's wage. Think about what you make in a year. Think about giving that all to Jesus. An entire year's salary. It's made, it says it's of pure nard or actually spike nard. Spike nard was a flowering plant and it was more likely found and imported from India. Very expensive here. And so it's sacrificial because it's very expensive and yet it's, it's a total gift here it's, it, because she has to break it in order for it to be poured out. So once it's broken, this is all going to be used here. Not just, she's not being partial about it, she's being total about it. And it's just this beautiful picture here, this total commitment. She's just all into Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And what she does for him is personal, it's sacrificial, and it is total. She is all in. And, and what a great example here. Now, when they're bothered, the others, because this could have been given to the poor, Bethany, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, some translations say it means the house of dates. But an actual better translation is Bet Ani. Ani in Hebrew means poor. 
And even in Aramaic, which would have been the language of Jesus' day, Anya meant poor. So Bet Anya, Bethany, means house of the poor. It is believed that Bethany was a place where there was actually a, a, a location called a poorhouse. That if, if you were, were poor or homeless, there was a place you could go in Bethany and, and they would take care of you. And it was known as the house of the poor, a place where the poor could go and live. That's the scene why someone, even though Judas was motivated by his own greed, would say, this could have been given to the poor, because they're in Betania, they're in the place where the poor live, and he's using it as an excuse to help the poor. And, and it's not like Jesus dismisses the poor, he just makes a, a matter-of-fact statement. We will never eradicate poverty, as much as we might try, we will always have the poor among us. And he doesn't stop there, though, he just says, and you can help them anytime you want. He does add that part. You can help them anytime you want. He says, but you won't always have me. And she's preparing me for burial. Well, it says, continuing on the story, verse 10, And then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Most often, and I know this is going to be a broad categorization of things, but most often people fall because of power, money, or sex. And it's a money thing here. The the human heart is often driven by power, money, or sex. And I mean sex in in a wrong and an unhealthy way outside of the bounds of what obviously God has given us to enjoy within the context of marriage. But those things often bring people down. And Judas's deal was money. He's going to betray Jesus out of greed. And it might have been on the, on, the, on the back of what just happened in this scene because he wanted the money for the perfume that he didn't get. So now he's all been out of shape and he's going to go see what he can do to betray Jesus. And what's he going to do? He's going to ask money for his betrayal. Well, verse 12 says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now that would be unusual, by the way, because in this culture, uh, anybody carrying a jar of water would have typically been a woman. And so, you know, God bless you ladies, you were doing the hard labor while the men typically, I mean Jesus could have added here, you know, normally a man would be at home in a lazy boy chair with a remote control, but he didn't, he was kind, and he just said, this, is good. this, this will stand out to you, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining, note that, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. He's talking about Judas. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely not I. Notice how they weren't all that confident about their own relationship with him. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not 
been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. And then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So in in my Bible, it's probably subtitled like it is in yours, uh, called the Lord's Supper. This is is where we get the the ordinance. Jesus Christ. Jesus initiates two ordinances for the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, your tradition might call it communion uh, or the Eucharist. Eucharist is just a Greek word that means the thanksgiving. And, And we get that from this passage. Now, what is this passage? Because in order to understand the ordinance we practice today, we have to understand the Jewish roots of it. First of all, contrary to Leonardo da Vinci's portrait of the Last Supper they would not have been all on one long table, okay, you know, looking straight on. They would have actually been reclining around a table that was called a triclinium. Now, this is just an artist's rendering of what a triclinium would look like. Triclinium is, is a Roman term from the Latin words that are a combination meaning three couches or three cushions. And there were three sections that were arranged like a U-shape. And this, this was a whole lot better if you're going to have a dinner party and you want to be able to see people instead of looking all the way down a long table, you know, contrary to Leonard. Um, that's what I call him, Leonardo to you. But anyhow, but it's more like, like a U-shape. And based on the text, now the only thing that this doesn't really show that well is, as I pointed out to you, they're reclining. Now here they're sitting, okay? You know, they're sitting just like we would sit, but not, not typically in Jewish style. In Jewish style, they considered their left hand to be unclean. Their right hand is what they would eat with. They would all recline on their left elbow, and, the, and their feet would be stretched out away from the table like spokes, you know, off of, off of a wheel. And, and their feet would be then extended outward as they would be reclining on the left elbow. Which is why in John's Gospel, when it talks about Jesus comes along and washes all their feet, it's because they're all stretched out. And so he could walk around the perimeter of the triclinium and wash everybody's feet like that. And here they are all leaning on their left elbows, typically, and they would eat with their right hand. And they're having this Passover. Now, based on the conversation and some of the things described, we have a pretty good guess where some of them were seated around the table. First of all, Jesus would have probably been seated second from the left side, second in uh, from the the left side, because that's typically where the host would sit around a triclinium at a Passover meal. And it, it was, you know, so that he could you know, be able to welcome new guests, typically the host, and get up and and be able to welcome new guests and still be able to see everybody and not be tied in. You know, you wouldn't put him at the end of the the U-shape or the horseshoe because then he can't get around the people very well. That's typically where where your host would sit. It is probably likely that John was seated to his right. Why? Because in the text it talks about how the one that Jesus loved, when you look at the gospel accounts, not necessarily Mark's gospel, you look at all the gospel accounts, it talks about how, G, how John was leaning on the breast of Jesus. 
or leaning on, on his chest. And, and if you're on your left elbow, and everybody's on their left elbow typically, and you're eating, if you're John, you're going to have to be leaning on Jesus and kind of looking up to be able to see him. And this is, you know, you're going to get friendly at a dinner like this, okay? Everybody's cozy. You're kind of leaning on people. It's Middle Eastern, okay? People are very warm, huggy, lovey. It's not like American. You have your three-foot bubble, all right? There's no bubble here, all right? Everybody is close. You're leaning on each other. And so that's probably where John was located. Peter was probably located on the opposite end because... In the Gospels, it says that when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, it says that Peter motioned to John and said, why don't you ask him who it is? And it would have been an easier conversation for someone across on the other side to be able to have conversation with John in that position. So that's probably where Peter was. And then lastly, this is probably where Judas was on Jesus' left. Because the text says that Jesus is sharing the same bowl to dip the bread. And that's probably the location of Judas. Now here's what's even more fascinating on the setup of the triclinium. The host is seated where Jesus is. And then he has his special guests on his right and on his left. Typically the person on your right at a dinner like this was considered one of your closest friends. That would be John. But the person on your left was considered the guest of honor. And Jesus put the one who would betray him in the position of the guest of honor. Now, it says a lot. Peter, by the way, is in the position of the servant. Typically, the servant would sit at that end so you could get up and get more food and wash people's feet. And Jesus intentionally puts the one who was the most boastful at the place of servanthood. And that plays out in this story in the verses that follow, which we'll get to next week. But very interesting order around the triclinium where Jesus had people positioned here. And, uh, and, and yet the very one who's going to betray him, Jesus had him right there. I'm sure that as much as when we read the story and, you know, and, and we get angry about Judas, you know, we feel like the betrayal and, we, and just the, how could you do such a thing and the disgust that we feel, I'm convinced that to the very end, Jesus loved him, that Jesus loved him and puts him right in that place of, of being the guest of honor. Brokenhearted over him? No doubt. Uh, Knows, obviously, here in advance that Judas is going to betray him. He says, it would be better for you never to have been born than to betray me, but brokenhearted and loved him nonetheless. And for any of us who have ever betrayed Jesus, and there are times we betray him in some way, shape, or form. Not, you know, disowned him in different ways, like we don't know him. We're not going to be his witness. We're going to pretend like we're not a Christian. All those different ways that we can betray him and disown him, Jesus still loves it. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary has been walking us through the book of Mark. More than the other gospel books, Mark seems to have been written in a way that communicates the fast-paced course of Jesus' ministry, 
helping us realize it was only for a short time. While the book of Matthew focused on proving Jesus as king, Mark focused on Jesus as a servant. Jesus repeatedly displayed his servant's heart through the various miracles he performed, caring for others above himself. Jesus' example of a servant is something that we should be humbled by and should follow in his footsteps by serving others. We'd like to take a step in that direction by serving you in some way. Can we be praying for you? We'd love to know what's on our listeners' hearts. If you're willing to share with us, our email address is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. We'd love to meet you, too. Come join us this weekend at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg. We're meeting in person as well as online, and you can find all the information you need on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you'll find additional teachings from this series in Mark and other series. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for tuning in to hear Pastor Gary on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know